Beth, Beth Kephart tells about a time when she moved from one house, one town to another, uh, and how she had to start over making friends. It was the beginning of her freshman year of high school. And I want to read you a section of what she writes in her book called The Tangle of Friendship, as we begin this morning. She wrote this, I had to think to myself, who might have room for me? Who isn't taken? I had to shield myself from the hazards of rejection and send out just enough signals, but not too many. Walking up and down the halls, I studied students at their lockers. I tried on different attitudes. I I sat in the front, in the back, in the middle of the bus. I strategized, adapted, and hoped that someone out there was also looking and that something about me would inspire them. One can go their whole life without a friend, and I realized that there is a possibility of perpetual loneliness. Well, Beth Kephart tells in her story that it was in this vast desert of isolation as she started in a new school in a new town that she not only found a friend but a best friend. Her name was Joanne. And Joanne was warm and bright and funny, and before long, these two 14-year-old girls became inseparable, and she explains all this in her book. And anyway, all of a sudden, the world changed for Beth because now she felt like she belonged and that somebody else was there with her through it all. When she walked into the cafeteria, for example, it was no longer a no-man's land. It was a safe place, and somebody was there waiting for her, saving a seat for her. Well, over the next four years, Beth and Joanne's friendship deepened. It deepened over pizza parties and birthday parties and and, uh, sleepovers and makeovers and science projects. And their senior year in high school, after four years of developing this friendship, Beth and Joanne, you know, were at a place where they told each other everything, uh, you know, as best friends do. She even told Joanne about her secret crush on this boy that she had fallen in love with. He was the most popular boy in school. Now, he didn't know that Beth was alive, but Beth kept hoping, as she wrote in her book. And every night she would come home and call Joanne and tell her all about it, you know, where he had sat and what he was wearing and and if he even looked her way or maybe said something to her on that particular day. He didn't show her much attention, but she kept holding on to hope. She was full of hope, in fact, until, until the day she saw Joanne walk into the prom arm in arm with him. She writes that a friendship that had been deepened over four years and that, you know, this was the only best friend she'd ever had, that as of the time of writing her book had been silenced for over 20 years. I think that most of us in the room have a different version of a very similar story. Most of us at some point or another know how it feels to have needed a friend, maybe found a friend, but then to have had that friendship go south. We all know how important friendship can be. Friendship is a gift from God. God knows the need we all have for relationship with someone who we can know and be known by, someone we can love and be loved by. 
Friendship is one of the reasons this church probably is so important to so many of you. It's where you have met and developed friendship. But most of us can still relate to the story of Beth and Joanne. Close friendships and strong disagreements, painful disagreements. Well, in our story today, as we look at two friends in the Bible named Paul and Barnabas, we see a friendship that started out really strong, but then went south, hit a wall. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. After Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find the book of Acts written by Luke. And we've been looking at different types of friendships in the Bible. If you've been here with us, you know that. We started with Ruth and Naomi a few weeks ago, talked about their amazing but unlikely friendship. Then we looked at David and Jonathan, who were best friends, enduring friends. Then we talked about Elijah and Elisha and how they were mentoring friends. And then last week we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a cord of three strands, not easily broken, how they were believing friends. And this morning, as we look at Paul and Barnabas, we're talking about friends who can disagree, disagreeing friends. Again, the friendship between Paul and Barnabas started off strong. Many of you probably know that Paul wrote... um, a big chunk of the New Testament. Um, And yet before he was a Christian, he was a persecutor of Christians. In fact, he often was part of murdering Christians. Well, after his life was turned upside down by an incredible encounter with Jesus, he decided to do a 180. I mean, a complete role reversal. Go in the opposite direction and be a supporter of the church rather than a persecutor of the church. But he was not exactly welcomed with open arms by the church, as you can probably understand. I mean, it's, it was for understandable reasons. Imagine this. Imagine that, say, 10 years ago before he was killed, imagine Osama bin Laden walking in here and saying, I'm a new man. I am different, and I want to now be an American. I believe in America, and I want to be in Colorado. In fact, I want to be a member of Impact Christian Church. I would guess most of us would have at, very, uh, at the very least been very skeptical of him, and some would have probably even wanted to say, hey, Mr. Bin Laden, the bottom line, there's the door. You're not welcomed here. You're not welcomed in this church. You're not really even welcomed in this country. Well, that's pretty much the way the church of Paul's day had uh, or thought of him, treated him. They weren't welcoming to him because they knew what he had done. They didn't trust his conversion, nor did they feel inclined to forgive him. But in Acts chapter 9, if you have your Bible, turn to that. Acts chapter 9, verse 26, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, as well as the the gospel called Luke, Luke records that Paul finds a friend. Listen to how he puts it. When Paul came to Jerusalem and tried to join the disciples, they were all afraid of him and believed that he wasn't really one of them. But Barnabas, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. See, Paul was on the outside looking in. He wanted to join in, but nobody trusted him. Nobody believed in him for, again, understandable reasons after what he had done. No one except for one person, one man, a guy by the name of Barnabas, who put his arm around his shoulder when nobody else would. You know, in these few verses, Barnabas demonstrated what kind of friend he was He was a friend who was loyal and trustworthy and kind and compassionate and gracious and unselfish. I guess if you boiled it all down, you could say he was really just, in a word, friendly. 
truly friendly. In Proverbs 18, verse 24, the New King James Version says it like this, He who has friends shows himself friendly. Friendly. You know, one of the best ways you can develop a good friendship is by taking the first step, by taking some initiative, showing yourself to be friendly. A lot of us are more like Paul, and we're waiting around for Barnabas to come into our life to take the first step. But maybe God is calling us. Maybe He's calling you or me. Maybe He's calling us to be Barnabas rather than to wait for Barnabas to come to us. You know, Barnabas took the initiative. He was proactive, whereas most of us sit back and wait for others. We're waiting for the neighbor to cross the street and talk to us. You know, we're waiting for the coworker to invite us to lunch. Or we're waiting for that other couple that sits in church every week close to us or whatever to invite us to go out to lunch or something. But maybe what God wants us to do is be Barnabas in those situations. He's saying, listen, I want you to cross the street. I want you to pick up the phone or, or the pencil. I want you to be the one to initiate. Be proactive rather than reactive. Romans chapter 12 talks about that a little bit. It says, do not repay e uh, anyone evil for evil. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. That is reactive. Somebody's mean to you, oh yeah, well then I'll be mean back to them. And you can do it in reverse with good stuff too, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, of course. You know, oh, they scratched my back, I'll scratch theirs. Oh, they wrote me a birthday card, then I'll try to remember theirs and write them one. Or, you know, whatever. Something along that line. But to be proactive is much better. God goes on in Romans 12 to talk about how we should be careful to do. Do is an active thing. To do, do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, which it's not always, but if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Be proactive. Do what you can. Don't just wait for the other person. In other words, don't do what some people do, which is completely misuse and misquote the golden rule. You know the golden rule? Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 7. I think it's in Mark 6 as well. But when, when he told us the, what we should do, and yet a lot of people misquote that and mislive that, and they go, all right, yeah, like Jesus said, we need to do unto others as they've done unto us. No, no, that's not actually what it says or what he said. No, he said, I mean, because that's reactive. He said, no, 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 be proactive. Do unto others as you would like or as you wish they would do unto you. Don't wait to see what they're going to do. You take the first step. If you're looking for closer friendships, maybe you need to quit waiting for the phone to ring. You know, quit waiting for someone to send you a card. You be Barnabas. You be proactive. You initiate. Barnabas reached out to Paul and showed himself friendly when no one else would, setting a great example for the rest of us. Well, skip forward two more chapters in the book of Acts. If you move to chapter 11, this is about 10 years later. And for the, most time, for the most part, during this 10 years, Paul has been in isolation or seclusion because God has been working on him, preparing him for a great ministry and missionary journeys and cool stuff that God's going to do in him and through him. Well, in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas, the, the cool thing that a lot of times we miss is you read through that, Barnabas is proactive. He goes and looks for Paul. And when he finds him, he brings him back to Antioch, and it's in Antioch that the two of them teach a great number of people. In fact, as a side note, Antioch is where Christians are first called Christians, where Christ followers are first given that name Christian. 
But what I want you to understand through this, or if you were to look at Acts 11, which we don't have time to read, um, it is there that Barnabas was thoughtful of Paul. It's been 10 years, and yet he thinks about his friend Paul, whom he had once proactively, when nobody else wanted to, Paul had taken him to, be, to meet and, and understand or get to know the apostles. And now he's proactive again. He goes and looks for Paul and goes to find him and brings him to Antioch. You know, I love the meaning of Barnabas's name. By the way, that's just his nickname. But Barnabas's name means son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. Isn't that awesome? I would guess some of you have been called a son of something, but maybe not encouragement. <laughs> and... Um, I have two, unjustly, of course, but anyway. <clears throat> but isn't it awesome? I mean, wouldn't it be amazing to have your nickname be something about how you encourage other people? What a cool nickname, you know, to be called something like that. Now, some people are, are given uh, supernaturally by God the gift of encouragement. I mean, it just comes natural to them. They are so inclined and gifted and good at encouraging other people. And some of the rest of us look at those kind of people and go, wow, that's, that's really cool for them. Now, I'm not given that gift, and so therefore I get a pass, and it's okay for me to be a jerk. I'm like, no, that's, that's not the way to look at that. Some, some are given supernaturally by God a spiritual gift of encouragement, yes. But all of us are called to encourage. All of us need to look for ways to encourage others. Look at what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep His promise. Let us, listen to this, let us think of ways, look for ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another. Again, look for ways. Think of ways to motivate one another, to encourage one another, especially now that the day of His return is drawing near. We are all to look for ways to build others up, to encourage others, like Barnabas, who was a great encouragement to Paul when he greatly needed it. The simple truth that I want you to understand is this. Friends act thoughtfully of one another. Act thoughtfully. In fact, whether or not your friend acts thoughtfully toward you is one of the best ways you can determine who your real friends really are. Genuine care, genuine love are things that are displayed thoughtfully through unselfish acts by your real friends. Real friends are thoughtful of one another. Robert Tuttle, who is today a grown man, a doctor in Milwaukee, um, wrote about, I enjoyed reading his story this week, he wrote about a time when he was a third grader, um, nine years old, and how he, it had never happened before, and it was terribly humiliating and, and, and all of that and embarrassing, but he once, as a nine-year-old third grader, wet his pants in the middle of class at school. Terrible situation. And he was horrified, he didn't know what to do, and he knew that he was going to be, you know, made fun of probably for the rest of you know, school all the way until he graduated high school. He, he just, he could see where this was about to head, but, and it had just happened. It had never happened before, but there he was, sitting in the classroom, and he was running down his leg and making a pool on the floor. A horrible situation. He wrote that at just about the time, um, you know, that all that happened, the teacher got up and started walking toward him. And he thought, oh boy, here, here we go. You know, the point of no return. It's all going to hit the fan. Everybody's going to know. She's going to call me out. But just before she got to his desk, a good friend of his, a, a young girl named Susie, 
came walking by him carrying the class's fishbowl that she had just rinsed out, cleaned out and rinsed out and refilled. And lo and behold, guess what? She tripped and fell and boom, dropped that right in his lap. Water splashes everywhere and everybody starts laughing and all of that. And he tried to act mad, but down inside he was going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You know, and students started making fun of Susie and ridiculing her for being clumsy. And I mean, the ridicule that should have come his way was going her way. Well, in the middle of all that, the teacher, you know, was trying to figure out what to do and how to fix the situation and get the ship headed back in the right direction. She turned to him and she said, Robert, go, go to the gym and put on some dry clothes. And of course, he gladly did so. And when he came back, he saw students still picking up stuff and still wiping up water, and they were still giving Susie grief, teasing her, picking on her for being clumsy and all of that. And Well, later that day, he said that he saw her outside at the bus stop, standing alone there by herself, waiting for the bus, and all of a sudden it hit him. And he walked up to her and he said, wait a minute, you did that on purpose, didn't you? And she turned to him and just smiled and paused and said, I wet my pants in second grade. <laughs> you know, a true friend is someone who does stuff like that, who sees a need and does their best to meet a need, even if it costs them as it did her. And so the friendship between Paul and Barnabas deepened. You know, again, Barnabas at this point has twice been thoughtful, twice been proactive and looked for ways to help Paul out. And as you read through the next five chapters, you read that five different times they are talked about. And it's the same every time. Barnabas and Paul this, Barnabas and Paul that, Barnabas and Paul. But then all of a sudden in Acts, um, let's see, Acts 13 verse 42, there is a subtle change that happens. All of a sudden for the first time after five previous mentions of them, all of a sudden the Bible says Paul and Barnabas things get turned around. Subtle change, a lot of times that's missed, but I don't, think, I don't think Barnabas would have missed it. I think it would have been hard on Barnabas. But a good friend is someone who can rejoice with the success of their friends. Barnabas had always been in the lead, and now Paul, whom God is going to do great things through, who he's already done some great things through at this point, Barnabas now takes a back seat to Paul because of that. And yet Barnabas seemed to be content to sit in the back seat. In fact, as you read the story, he seems to almost kind of say over and over, Paul, I celebrate your success with you. This is, it's cool. It's all good. It's awesome. And friends do that. Friends rejoice with other friends when success comes their way. Maybe you have a friend who's jealous of you. Maybe. Or maybe you're the one who's jealous of your friend. And you find yourself kind of going, what, what, what's up with that? You know, that should be me. Maybe that's you. It's easy to slip into moments like that, but a true friend rejoices with the success of their friend, even though it's difficult to do. I mean, when your friend is the one who gets the promotion, or maybe your friend is the one who gets invited to the dance, or, or maybe your friend is the one who gets the nicer car, or, or meets the love of their life, or has a baby when you don't, or maybe has the perfect teenager and you don't, or they... They find the good investment and you don't. It, it can be difficult to rejoice with friends in moments like that, but that is what true friends or godly friends do. 
But Paul and Barnabas show that they are true friends by the way they celebrate each other's success. So their friendship deepened, and they went on this missionary journey together. And I'll just kind of summarize some of this, but they traveled all around and spoke at different churches together, and they experienced great success. God blessed them, worked through them. It was a wonderful thing. But then Acts chapter 15 comes, and we read about this disagreement between the two of them. Here's what happened. It was on the first missionary journey. In short, they had taken this one other person named John Mark with them. Um, This is the same Mark who later in life wrote the second gospel in the New Testament. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark wrote that later. But at this point in time, he was a much younger man, probably a much less mature version of himself. We don't know a whole lot about it, but we do know that for some reason, some unnamed reason, he abandoned Paul and Barnabas. He left them when they needed them, needed him most. Now, who knows? He was young, so maybe he did that just simply because he got homesick. Maybe because he got overwhelmed as a young man. He just couldn't handle all that was going on. Maybe he got physically sick. We're not told. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we know that he deserted them when they needed him most. He especially left Paul shorthanded for the rest of that missionary trip. So now, back to where we're at in Acts chapter 15, they're back from that trip. They're getting ready for a second trip, preparing, uh, getting, you know, getting everything put together and all that. And Barnabas basically comes to Paul and says, hey, Paul, let's go and get John Mark again. Let's take him with us again. Let's give him another chance. And listen to how Paul responds Acts, verse, uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So Paul, in other words, emphatically said, no, no, we are not taking him again with us, not after the way he deserted us in our time of need in the past. We're not doing that. We're not taking him again. He stood his ground. I think it's safe to say that Paul had forgiven Mark. I mean, the Bible doesn't say this, but I think it's safe to assume that he was not being ungodly. He just simply said, look, I wish Mark well, but I don't trust him. After what he's done before, I don't want to trust him and depend upon him in situations like that again, which is understandable. But Barnabas saw it differently. Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The Bible says they had such a sharp disagreement that they split. They went in opposite directions or different. All of that happened or how that went down or what was said or, uh, you know, what the last words were. Did they shake it out or hug it out or any? We don't know any of that. But we know it was a sharp disagreement, and probably it's safe to assume it was painful. It's not easy. And I'll bet everyone in the room today has been there and done that. Anybody never had something like that happen? Never had a sharp disagreement with anybody? We're all there. We've all been there. And I think there are a couple of important things to remember and learn from this, thing, this situation. Let me just tell you real quickly three short things we can learn from this. For one, number one, it is normal to disagree. We got to understand it is normal to disagree. If you can't remember the last time you had a disagreement with someone, then you probably don't have any friends, like zero. 
You know, or maybe you live in a cave, or maybe you're a porcupine, I don't know. I mean, because porcupines, I, I did some study this week. I saw one on the road, which is unusual. You don't see a lot of them, but somebody ran over one. I saw that, so I got to looking at porcupines. Porcupines have about 30,000 quills, and they can be use, uh, used for a lot of things, but they're especially useful when they're trying to defend themselves, of course. But those quills, 30,000 of them, do not generally bring about a whole lot of friendships. Porcupines are pretty isolated animals from what I understand as I read about them. Solitary. They don't have many friends. I mean, and think about this. When's the last time a child ever asked, hey, mommy and daddy, can I have a porcupine for a pet? I mean, who wants to hug one of those, you know? And so assuming you're not a porcupine or aspiring to ever be one, you need to remember that disagreements are common. In fact, they are normal in relationships. It is not, the issue is not whether or not you will disagree with your friend or your spouse or whoever it is. It's how you will handle that disagreement. And secondly, similarly, it is not necessarily a sin to disagree. I think we need to understand this anywhere in the book of Acts or elsewhere that would tell us that either of these two men were sinful in how they handled this situation. They very strongly disagreed. They parted company, but that doesn't mean that they were sinful. Christian brothers and sisters a husband and wife, two best friends, whatever it is, can disagree and still can be completely in the right, completely honoring toward God. But point number three, as we all know, is that it is easy to sin when you disagree, when you get angry. It's very easy to sin. We've all been there. You know, a difference of opinion can lead to an honest disagreement, which can lead to hurt feelings, which often leads to harsh words, which leads to the husband sleeping on the couch or something like that. You know how that works. Or maybe somebody waving at somebody else with only one finger in an, in an appropriate way. You know what I mean? Or maybe fists being thrown or you know, things like that. That's why God tells us in Ephesians 4, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So when you disagree, key word when, because we all are going to disagree with others that we're in relationship with. When you disagree, handle it carefully and prayerfully. I think that's what God wants us to understand. It's easy to sin when you disagree because when you, when you are disagreeing, it's usually because you're angry. And when you're angry, if you're like me, when you get angry, you tend to make bad decisions. Anybody else ever tend to kind of make a bad decision when you get angry? Yeah. Okay, me and about three others. The rest of you are way better. I tend to struggle when I get angry. I'm more likely to make a bad decision. And so God tells us to be careful to not give the devil a foothold. Don't allow it to turn into a foothold, which any rock climber can tell you that's the key to climbing to the top of something. Handholds are important, but footholds are where the real weight is taken of your body, and that's the key. And the devil, our enemy, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour, is constantly looking for ways to grab or to gain a foothold where the, he can take a little thing and turn it into a big thing, where he can destroy you. A house divided against itself cannot stand. He knows that, and so that's what he's all about. You give him an inch, and he will take a mile. So carefully and prayerfully, deal with these kinds of things. And in a timely manner, ideally, ideally the same day, before the sun goes down, Scripture says, don't let it fester and grow into something bigger than it really is. That's probably something else we've all done. Let things develop into something huge when it really was just, you know, that big. And one of the best ways to maintain perspective is to live out 
Another verse in Ephesians chapter 4, it's just a couple of sentences later. It's so awesome. I love it. It's a great verse to memorize. It's a great verse to live by. I've memorized it. I'm still working on living by it. But Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. Oh, that is powerful. That is an awesome truth. Kind and compassionate. Showing yourself to be a friend, in other words. You know, Kind and compassionate, by the way, does not necessarily mean believing that, that they are right and that you're wrong. It doesn't have to mean that. You might not come to that conclusion. It means letting it go. It means choosing to remember that you have been wrong at numerous points in the past, right? We all have. And you have been forgiven, at least by Almighty God, when you didn't deserve it. And so you come to places where you go, you know what? All right, maybe they're wrong and I'm right might be the other way around, but even if it is true that they're the one that's wrong, even if that's true, then you say, all right, Lord, help me to be kind and compassionate, forgiving them as you have forgiven me when I didn't deserve it. Help me to forgive them even if they don't deserve it. Let it go. Plus, ask yourself, is it really that big of a deal? Is it a hill worth dying on? In fact, if it's a husband-wife situation, maybe you need to ask yourself, what's more important? What, What do I care more about, winning the argument or winning their heart? Well, let me skip ahead a little bit. You know, disagreements are natural. Natural, whether it be two friends or two strangers in traffic, either way. But if we are Christians, the fruit of the Spirit should be part of our life, right? Do you know that? You know, if you're an apple tree, you produce apples. And if you are a Christian, you produce the fruit of the Spirit. If, you know, so many people talk about and, and, focus on wanting to be in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. But we need to remember that if we are doing so, if we're walking with the Lord, if we're in the Spirit, then the fruit of the Spirit will be evident in our life. And God tells us what that is. He gives us nine words to describe it in Galatians chapter 5, another verse, awesome, worth more than worthy of being memorized and meditated on. The Bible says it like this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's an awesome list of nine there. And I wonder, as I look at that, how many of those nine attributes could be argument-altering? Argument-altering. Look at that again. Look, look at that. Um, let's go on to the Galatians 5. Do we have that? It's probably the next screen. Can we find Galatians 5? Keep going. There we go. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Which of those do you think might alter arguments if they were part of your life? If the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life, if you're more loving, maybe you need to stop and say, God, help me to learn how to be more loving, or, or when it comes to disagreements or other parts of life. How about if you are a peacemaker, or if you're patient, or kind, we've already talked about that word, gentle, self-controlled, all of those are amazingly powerful, argument-altering fruits of the Spirit. Maybe this is a verse you need to memorize and meditate on this week. Ask God to help you, you know, like an apple tree that needs to produce apples. You may need to say, Lord, I am all in. I am with you, but I need to produce more of the fruit of your Spirit. Would you help me produce, maybe you list all nine, or maybe it's one or two that stand out to you. 
Let's say it together. Say it with me. Maybe this will get you started on memorizing it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In fact, the next verse says, against such things there is no law. It's a beautiful list and something we need to all focus on. Well, as we come to the end of our story, we're not sure if Paul and Barnabas ever reconnected as friends. The Bible doesn't actually tell us. But more than 10 years later, an issue is brought to mind again, another 10-year moment. And at this point, Paul didn't have much left on the earth, much time left on the earth when he wrote these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But listen to what Paul says. It's a different context, but here's what he says. He says, only Luke, if you remember Luke, he's the guy who wrote about the story, wrote about the disagreement, wrote the book of Acts. He says at this point, only Luke is with me. But listen, but get Mark. And bring him with you to be, uh, to me, I mean, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. That's really cool. Now, you have to read between the lines a little bit. But I think Paul, who obviously is talking about the same Mark, by the way, the same John Mark who was at the center of the disagreement between he and Barnabas earlier, some 10 years before, here Paul seems to be saying, look, I have changed my mind. Now, maybe it's because Barnabas is just a different guy and he's matured at this point in his life. Maybe. Or maybe Paul is saying, I was wrong. You know what? I was wrong. And, and um, Mark now is somebody that I find encouragement from. And I, I want to ask you, how do you say it? Bring him to me because he is helpful to me in my ministry. The point I want you to see is this. Paul's heart had softened. Clearly, his heart had softened. And maybe that's what some of you need today. You need to pray, oh dear God, soften my heart. Help me to be like Paul was in this moment. Paul had a right, I mean, he had a legitimate reason to be frustrated with Mark. He had a reason to say, no more. But now he says, hey, bring Mark along too. Man, he's awesome. Mark, he's been helpful to me in my ministry. Mark's, I mean, Paul's heart had been totally softened. Maybe you need to ask God to soften your heart towards someone else. Maybe you need to offer forgiveness to somebody that you have wronged. Maybe you need to seek forgiveness from somebody um, that you've been, that you need to be reconciled with. Let me ask you to do this. Would you ask yourself this morning as we close, would you ask yourself, is there anyone... I mean, maybe it's somebody that was a close friend in the past, but is there anyone in my life that I need to clear the air with? Are there any disagreements that need to come to an end in a way that would honor God through some kind of reconciliation process? If so, maybe you need to kneel before Almighty God today and say, God, help me. Give me wisdom to know how to proceed, what what to do to move forward, how to initiate, how to be proactive rather than reactive. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Maybe the best thing you could do today in response to this message is go home and pick up the phone. Make the phone call or pick up the pen and write the card or the letter. Send the text, send the email, whatever it may be. We honor God when we love each other in such actions. But maybe the key for you is not so much a horizontal relationship, but 
something this way. Maybe for you, I can't help but wonder if this morning the name that comes to mind for you is God Himself. Maybe the person you need to get right with is Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that between us there is more than just a disagreement. There is, in fact, a great chasm. It's like the Grand Canyon, and it is sin that separates us from Almighty God. And it is not bridgeable. It is not scalable. It is not crossable except in one way. And that is when Jesus was proactive. He didn't just react. He was proactive, and He did for you and I what we needed more than anything else. He built a bridge by going to a cross like that and dying for you and me. So will you stand with me as we close? And as we do, I want to ask you, I want to pray for just a moment and ask God to reveal us, reveal to us who it might be that we need to reconcile with. And maybe it's Almighty God Himself. Maybe it's somebody else. But would you bow your head and let's pray together. Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask you, Lord, would you reveal truth to us in this whole context that we're talking about? And help us, if needed, to recognize that we need to go and proactively go to somebody else and seek forgiveness or offer forgiveness or do what we can to live at peace as much as it depends on us. Lord, help us to do our part. Lord, maybe there are those here today, maybe it's one person who needs to surrender to you, whose bigger issue is not with some other person on this planet, but is ultimately with you. And they need to come and just lay it all down before you and trust you with everything. Lord God, if there be somebody in that boat today, would you just give them the courage to step forward and to walk down front and to say, I I don't have all the answers, but Lord, I want to I want to give you everything I have. I want to surrender all I am to you because you are more than enough. Christ is enough for me. And Lord, I just want to acknowledge that and trust you with that. This is our prayer, Lord. Speak to our hearts and help us to honor and follow and heed whatever it is you say. In Jesus' name, and everybody together said, 